almost to Moss Landing. That's clear into Castroville from there. And the northbound traffic coming from Watsonville starts the Rarboy Junction and goes through to Live Oak. And now it is time for Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems with Joe Jordan and Rachel Goodman. Recently, Planet Watch caught up with Chris McKay. He's senior scientist at NASA, and his interest focuses on the evolution of the solar system and the origins of life. He's also actively involved in planning for future Mars missions, including human exploration. But his real passion these days is Enceladus. We'll find out what that is and why he's so fascinated by it in this interview. Stay tuned. I'm sitting here with Chris McKay, who's just arrived from uh, NASA over to Santa Cruz, and we're going to talk to him about the search for life on Mars. Welcome to Planet Watch. Well, actually, I've been interested in the search for life on Mars for a long time, but lately I've shifted. I'm no longer enthused about Mars, and I'm enthused about Enceladus. Little moon of Saturn has really taken over my life. Uh, Mars is past and the reason is, is the Cassini results are just so spectacular at Enceladus. Flying through the plume of Enceladus, which it discovered, we anticipated the plume was there, but Cassini discovered it. They find that that plume originates from an ocean, that that ocean has hydrothermal activity, that there's carbon in the plume and hence in the ocean from, in the form of organic material, biologically available nitrogen, and a chemical source of energy that would be just fine if you were a methanogen. So there it is the most habitable environment in the solar system, and samples are coming out of spa into space fresh from the oven. I mean, it couldn't be any better than that. And just to relate this to a little bit of past Planet Watch history, we interviewed about a year ago your colleague at NASA and former um, grad school office mate, Carol Stoker, about Enceladus, and I was calling it Enchiladas, I think, at the time. But anyway, pretty fascinating stuff. Exactly. The, the topic is so new that we don't all agree on how to pronounce the name of it. In fact, the, the, the correct Greek pronunciation is different from all of the above. I can't even reproduce it. But that has captured our attention. It is clearly, and I think by far, the best target for the near-term search for evidence of life beyond the Earth. And it has an added bonus that Saturn is so far away that the chances of Earth and Enceladus exchanging life, and hence confusing the story, are very, very small compared to Mars. So I, I've been frustrated by the idea that we go to Mars, we find evidence of life, and it just turns out to be us all over again because Earth and Mars are exchanging material like via meteorites. Enceladus is thousands of times less likely to have exchanged life with Earth. So it, it really is the target. So we are focusing, I am focusing my, uh, my energy on a concept to go to Enceladus and sample that plume. And what about Europa, though? That was a hot topic in a cold part of the solar system around Jupiter. Yeah, Europa's exciting, but it looks impractical to me. Uh, there's an ocean there, we know. That ocean may be habitable, may not. We don't have any evidence to really uh, definitively say it is habitable the way we can for Enceladus because we don't have samples of it like we do on Enceladus. But the real difficulty is that it looks like to get to that ocean, we're going to have to go through 10 kilometers of ice. That, that's just not in the cards. That's not technology we can master. Now, there's lately been small hints that maybe Europa has some sort of plume activity or vapor surrounding it. If that's shown to be emanating from the ocean, like it is for Enceladus, and it's shown to have 
organic material and biologically available nitrogen and energy sources, then sure enough, I'll become very excited about Europa. But right now, that 10 kilometers of ice is basically a real big uh, turnoff in terms of how we're going to do emission. And how would you uh, investigate life on Enceladus? Fly through the plume and just grab a sample. It's just coming right out. And the, the, the beauty of it is that that material would have been coming from the ocean just 20 minutes earlier. So you're really getting fresh material. One of the vexations about Mars is we're searching for life that's billions of years or millions of years old. And we have to wonder how well is it preserved and what has altered. You know, you, you find a, a roadkill that's a million years old. It's not going to be very tasty. Whereas if you just knocked it over and now you got it, it's fresh from the oven, I like to say. So Enceladus it makes the whole problem much easier much better defined. The only drawback to Enceladus is that Saturn is so far away. We tend to think of the solar system as this small little club, but the outer planets are really outer. Saturn is 10 times the distance from the sun than the Earth is. That makes it effectively 20 times further than Mars, because Mars and Earth come within half an AU with respect to each other. So it takes 20 times longer to get there. So a mission to Mars may take half a year to fly there. A mission to Enceladus takes a decade, 20 times longer, a decade just to get there. So you say you spend five years building a spacecraft and it takes 10 years to get out there. Then because Enceladus is so close to Saturn, it takes us a couple years to wind the orbit down. And you're looking at a 20-year mission. That adds up. So. Uh, one of the things we're doing in our mission design is we are recruiting people as young as we can, grad students who aren't even finished with their PhD are put on the science team, knowing that in 20 years they will be at the peak of their careers while I'm at the peak of a vertical bed <laughs> lying down horizontal or something, right? So, uh, so it's an it's a interesting way to think of multi-generational projects. And if you found life, what do you think you're going to find? Well, what we expect to find is microbial life. Uh, if we look at the history of the Earth and look at these kind of environments, uh, the energy source is suitable for methanogens. We can point to places on Earth which are ecologically similar to what we're seeing on Enceladus. What we find there are microbes, uh, and that's, that's reasonable. We're not going to find electrical octopuses, if you saw the movie Europa Report. Yeah, disappointing. Uh, but that's still very exciting, particularly if that life turns out to be a second genesis, different from life on Earth, not a common origin with life on Earth. I think that would be worth the wait, worth the work, and worth the money if we could find evidence of a second genesis. Because if we could determine that right here in our solar system, our little solar system, life started twice, N equals two, then we know that, uh, well, we know N is not one, and if we know that it's two, we know that it's really, really, really big. That is virtually infinite. The universe is full of life. And that would be pretty interesting to know. And we could get that just maybe by studying Enceladus right here, that plume reaching out into space, almost taunting us. Come and get me. Come and get me. And uh, Chris is here today actually to give a talk uh, at UC Santa Cruz about a completely different topic terraforming Mars. Well, I guess the connection is life, exactly. but uh, it's making Mars more suitable for life. And uh, maybe you can just tell us real quick, okay, what is terraforming? Basically, how would we do it and a pro and a con or something right, like right. that? Well, the, the, the reason I'm giving a talk about terraforming is because it's in the news. 
I've been studying terraforming for, I don't know, 30, 30 years, and I've gotten more emails and inquiries about it in the last couple of years than I have in the previous 30. And, and why is it in the news? Well, it's in the news because there's a lot of talk about humans going to Mars, uh, both in the movies, The Martian, private uh, organizations like SpaceX saying they're going to go to Mars, and, and they look serious. People take them seriously. Even NASA, not wanting to be left behind, says we're going to Mars too. So people are asking the question, well, what are we going to do when we get there, uh, assuming that we can get there? Um, what are we going to do? And terraforming comes up. And terraforming, the origin of, of the concept is that we have a planet that's rich in life. Here's Mars. We have evidence that early in its history it had water and an atmosphere. Maybe it had life. Could we bring it back? Well, that's an interesting question, and one could approach it purely as a thought experiment. What does it need to bring Mars back? What is required to bring Mars back to a state where life could, could survive there? Well, the fundamental challenge is warming up the planet. Well, that turns out to be a technology that we have mastered, completely mastered. Not only have we mastered it, we have implemented it here on Earth. Now, we may be in denial that we're doing it, but it's, it's clear that we human beings are capable of warming up planets. Uh, now, I'm not advocating that we do that on Earth or continue doing that on Earth. It's clear that we have been. But we could apply that same technology to Mars. And surprisingly, it turns out that Mars would warm up in about 100 years to temperatures that would be suitable for life, for water and life. That's, when you think of it, it's kind of a remarkable result, that if we were to do on Mars what we're doing on Earth, we could warm up the planet in about 100 years. But then if you think back about the whole global change debate, you realize it's not that surprising. Scientists are saying that we will warm up the Earth in about 100 years, significantly warmer than it is if we continue doing what we're doing. So the idea of warming up planets is not as far-fetched as it sounds. But that, that doesn't really terraform Mars if you take the meaning of the word literally, which means making it like Earth, because it will be warm and it will be wet, but it will have a thick carbon dioxide atmosphere, not an oxygen-rich one that we have. The oxygen-rich atmosphere that we breathe is really a pollution due to life. Microorganisms billions of years ago put out this waste gas called oxygen, and much to the uh, distress of their neighbors, they polluted the whole planet. We have adapted to, to rely on it and use it, uh, highly energetic reactions. But in some sense, it is a biological product and it's a pollution. And so one would have to have the biology on Mars do that, and that takes a long time. And that puts terraforming Mars as it is in science fiction out of reach. It's 100,000 years. Terraforming Mars in the sense that it could have life, trees, certain insects and microbes and many low oxygen requiring animals even, that's actually surprisingly close. So there's this real split between what's possible and what isn't. And it's interesting when we look at Earth history, we see that Earth had these same two, two states as well. For most of Earth's history, there was not oxygen in the atmosphere. If you suddenly appeared in the Wayback Machine back three billion years on Earth, you'd find life all around you, but you wouldn't be able to breathe the air or drink the water. Right? So uh, Earth had a period that was anoxic, no oxygen. And then it moved to a period, rather rapidly moved to a period where it was oxygen rich. On Mars, we can easily make that Earth-like early period. It's very hard to make that second period with oxygen. So that's the, the physics of it. But the fact that we could imagine in just 100 years warming up Mars and making it a 
a planet rich in biology, I think implies some very interesting environmental ethics questions. And in fact, I would argue that it raises two completely novel environmental ethics questions that have never been raised on Earth before. The first one is, is life, capital L, better than nature, capital N? On Earth, they're exactly the same. When people say respect nature or cherish life, they're saying the same thing. When we go to Mars, it's clear that they're not the same thing. Nature as we see it on Mars, nature with a capital N, is devoid of life. We could imagine bringing life to it, but then we're, we're, we're forced to ask the question, what do we value more, nature as it is, or life? Uh, and that question is not really meaningful on Earth. Uh, you have to work very hard, and we've done it, to find places on Earth where there's landscapes that are devoid of life. There's only two I know of on the whole Earth, the upper valleys of the dry valleys of Antarctica and the heart, driest core of the Atacama Desert. Uh, so that's the first question. Uh, the second question is, what ethical issues are raised when we encounter a type of life that's completely separate from our life, a second genesis. On Earth, all life forms are related. We're all on the same tree of life. We all eat each other and feed each other and just, we interact with each other. We're all part of one big biological family, really, with a common ancestor and a common genetics and a common biochemistry. Well, what happens if we, 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 we encounter the other, an organism that is not on our tree of life, that is not part of our family? And what if that organism is only microscopic? What does that mean? Uh, some people say, well, microbes, who cares? Put them in a jar and stick them in the lab. That's what we're doing with smallpox. And, you know, you kill them when you brush your teeth and wash your hands and keep doing that. Uh, on the other hand, you might argue that uh, another type of life represents a diversity in life that warrants ethical consideration. Or if you have no ethical consideration to spare, you might argue that the scientific value of another type of life, the knowledge that could be gained from it, would warrant preserving it from purely utilitarian views in terms of environmental, environmental action. That's an example of, another, of the second question that has no parallel on Earth. We, have, we never had to ask the question, how do we treat a second genesis of life? Because we never discovered one. All life on Earth represents one example of life. So it's interesting to explore these ethical issues. The scientific aspects of terraforming, I think, can be worked out. You just work out the numbers. The ethical questions, though, are questions of values. That's the nature of ethics. And there, there isn't an obvious right answer. Maybe you decide to hell with the second genesis. We're just going to move them aside. And you might decide, well, to hell with nature. I want life. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to wrap up Chris's fascinating stuff, a preview of things to come. But uh, parting thoughts on, I've been thinking, hey, it's time that we get back to terraforming Earth and making Earth great again. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Well, if, if you ask the question a little deeper, what is our big-term big goal? What's the big story? What are we trying to do? I would argue, on Earth and elsewhere, and I would argue that the answer is, or one possible answer, the answer I would advocate is that we should have as our biggest goal enhance the richness and diversity of life in the universe. And that obviously includes the Earth. Enhancing the richness and diversity of life on Earth is something we should commit to doing, and there's no disagreement on that. But then I think I would say we apply that when we move off the Earth. 
that when we look at planets like Mars and we encounter new questions, new ethical questions like life versus nature and second genesis, we take as our guiding principle that our goal is to enhance the richness and diversity of life in the universe. And that means we search for life on Mars. If we find a second genesis, we, in some sense, support it. We help it. We say, we're from the government, we're here to help. <laughs> now that presupposes we can figure out what help means, but uh, it's somewhat analogous to finding somebody who's fallen over dead with a heart attack. You know they need help, you know how to help them, you help them. And you would feel morally remiss if you did not help them, if you knew how to do that. I think we should take that attitude toward life. We're here to help expand the richness and diversity of life in the universe, and we should use our unique talents as a intelligent species with technology at our disposal to, to push that forward. Uh, so I'm all for life. I'm pro-life. I see stickers on lots of cars that agree with me. Pro-life, pro-life. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time here with us on Planet Watch. Um, I'm enjoying uh, what's going to come with your talk. So thank you for being here and spending time. My pleasure. We've been talking with Chris McKay. He's senior scientist at NASA and focuses on life on other planets and how the origins of life on our own planet might tell us more about the possibility of life elsewhere. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to Planet Watch. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm speaking with Frederica Otto, who's acting director of the Environmental Change Institute and an associate professor in the Global Climate Science Program at Oxford University, where she leads several projects understanding the impacts of man-made climate change on natural and social systems, with a particular focus on Africa and India. She is part of the World Weather Climate Attribution Project, which is a multi-science, multi-institution project that is collaborating between scientists in several different countries to try to figure out an assessment of the human influence on extreme weather and the immediate aftermath of the event occurring. Thank you, Frederica, for being with us here on Planet Watch. Let's start out by just having you tell me a little bit about the project you're working on um, with weather attribution, climate attribution. Tell me how this collaborative got started. Uh, so the project is called uh, World Weather Attribution, and it was an initiative that we started uh, in 2014. The reasoning behind it was that um, whenever there is an extreme weather event happening, someone will soon ask the question what the role of climate change is. And uh, before our initiative existed, it was usually that people would say, well, you can't really attribute individual extreme events, and they would either say, well, this is what you expect, or, uh, or they would say this is sort of unusual. Um, and usually people would answer the question that had a political agenda only, but no evidence. And so um, what our, yeah, our motivation was that because it is now possible to attribute individual weather events to anthropogenic climate change, which means to say whether and to what extent an individual event has been made more likely or less likely due to climate change. Um, but usually at that point in time, studies took um, about a year or longer to, to be done because they, um, yeah, they went through, through peer review uh, in the, the normal 
scientific way. And so we thought, well, because we can now do this, and we have the methodologies um, that are peer-reviewed, um, we can do this faster and we can provide evidence about the role of climate change while the event is still happening. So that, that's, that's what the motivation behind it. And originally it was um, uh, set up by uh, myself and Gerd Jan van Oldenburg, uh, who's a researcher at the um, Netherlands, the Met Service in the Netherlands, and uh, Climate Central, which is an, uh, a non-profit in the US. Yeah, yeah, you will have probably heard of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the Red Cross Climate Center. And uh, we have uh, whatever, yeah, and so the, we did the first study, uh, the Euro- a European heat wave in 2015, and since then have done, yeah, I think almost 30 studies. Um, some of them really fast within, uh, within a week or so, some of them a bit slower, depending on the type of event, depending on the availability of the data, availability of, of the manpower we have. Um, Climate Central uh, pulled out of the project um, earlier this year, but uh, the rest of the team is, is still going strong. And, uh, yeah, we, we always partner with other researchers uh, depending on the region where the event that we are looking at is. So uh, when we did st- something on India, we worked with Krishna Kucharao from IIT Delhi. When we did studies on East Africa, we worked with people from the Kenya Met Service. When we did something in the U.S., we worked with uh, with people from so for Hurricane Harvey. We worked with uh, with people from Rice University. So yeah, that that sort of we have a, a wide network of people we collaborate with depending on the event. But the key, the core team is. Yeah, myself, Gerd Jan van Oldenburg, and the Red Cross Climate Center. So as I understand it, um, quite often when you hear reporting about an extreme weather event, we've here in California had some pretty big ones recently, the wildfires in Redding, of course, an extended drought. Um, So when they report on an extreme weather event, you don't always hear what the connection is between climate change and... The extreme weather event, you just hear this isolated story. Um, is one of your goals to try to insert into the conversation the fingerprint, to the extent of the fingerprint of climate change on these extreme weather events? Yes. So that, that, is, that is definitely one, one of the motivations we have, that we say, well, because not all extreme events are affected by climate change. In, in that, well, they all happen in a changed climate, but not all of them are getting worse. Or, but a lot of them are. Uh, but it depends very much on where in the world and what type of event and what season, how much, uh, how much uh, climate change has a role. Um, so, which is why we can't just say something for all heat waves and all extreme rainfall events that would apply everywhere in the same way. That's why we have to do individual studies. But we try and do as many as we can in a rapid way. We can't do that for all of them um, because, well, we are basically four people and we also have all other jobs. But um, we, yeah, we try to do that for as, for as many as we can. And also, um, even if we don't do a study ourselves, 
um, or we can't do a study because we don't have the data or we don't have um, uh, we don't have the manpower, we try to at least say what in similar events the role of climate change was so that it is at least part of the conversation. Right. So do you look at historic data from former large storms, hurricanes, droughts and so forth to try to make an assessment of how much worse the current event is? Um, yes, so what we do is we we look at the observed data, first of all, to find out what, what, what has actually happened. So if there is, for example, flooding, then we, we want to, yeah, so we look at the observed data. Is the flooding because of extreme rainfall over one day in the area of the flooding? Or was it actually an extremely soggy season? Or did it rain further upstream? Um, and so, so that we characterize what actually the event was from a weather point of view. And then we look at observed records of that. Um, of that variable that we have that we have identified and see how has how has it changed in the observed record if at all but then because because we don't really have observations of a world without climate change uh, and other things apart from climate change also have changed we also use climate models and so what we do is we use um, climate models to simulate what is possible weather in the world we live in today and then we get a likelihood for the event we are interested in. So let's say it's an extreme rainfall event and we, we find out that in the world we live in today, it's a one in 10 year event. And then we say, what would the likelihood of an event like this have been in a world that might have been without anthropogenic climate change? And so you, we use exactly the same climate models and the same experimental setup, but remove the man-made uh, gases from the climate model's atmosphere and then again ask okay what is possible weather in the world that might have been and it might be that in in in, in this uh, random example uh, the event would have been a one in 20 year event in the world that might have been and because the only thing that is different between these two experiments is climate change we can then say that climate change has doubled the likelihood of the event occurring for most um, casual observers and the general public, when we're watching um, the coverage of hurricanes, which seem to be getting worse, even if you don't have the data that you have, um, the casual observer would be hard-pressed not to say things seem to be going out of whack. Um, so you are supplying exactly how out of whack these events might be viewed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's take a couple of the categories you track. Uh, you do drought. So let's talk about that. We have been in a drought on and off in California for quite some time. Of course, maybe not as extreme as some of the other ones you're tracking around the world. What are you seeing in terms of the intensity of the drought and how you're measuring that intensity occurring? So drought is actually... Um, very different in different parts of the world. So we have... for. We have particularly looked at uh, at droughts in East Africa, in South Africa, and also in South America. And uh, we found that in East Africa, although there is um, there is a strong drying trend, so there were many droughts in recent years and also many severe droughts, that um, climate change is probably not the the a big driver behind this drying trend. Um, in, in East Africa, so um, 
there is not from a so when we do the same so looking at what's the likelihood of drought today what's the likelihood of drought in a world that might have been in east africa we find that actually that from a lack of rainfall point of view climate change is only playing a minor role if any so there are other factors like land use change uh, and so on that 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 play in, um, an important role in in these droughts. The picture looks very different in South Africa, where we see a strong influence on of anthropogenic climate change. So, the the recent drought that almost uh, led to Cape Town running out of water. So we did a study on that and found that it has been made three times more likely. Um, because of climate change. And so there is, and the reason for that, that you have these different results is that there are basically two ways how climate change can affect weather. So one way is what we would call the thermodynamic effect. So when you have higher temperature, uh, when you have more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the atmosphere as a whole warms up. So you have higher global mean temperatures, and that also leads to higher local temperatures, and that leads to an increase in heat waves on average. Um, and also a warmer atmosphere can hold more water vapor, so that vapor needs to come down as rain again. So if you have a warmer atmosphere, you have on average also more uh, intense rainfall. But at the same time, and also on a global average, you would have a higher uh, evaporation so it dries out quicker because of the higher temperatures. But at the same time, there is a second effect, which we will call the dynamic effect. And that is um, when you change the atmospheric composition, as we have done with adding greenhouse gases, adding more water vapor, that affects the atmospheric circulation. So that uh, affects where weather systems develop, how they develop and where they move and how long they stay. And so, and this effect, um, can be very different depending on the season and depending also on the part of the world. And so in some cases, for example, with um, the rainfall associated with hurricanes, we see that both effects seem to be working in the same direction. So you have more rainfall because of the thermodynamic effect, because of the warming, but the rainfall is, is increase in rainfall is stronger than you would expect only from uh, from from the thermodynamic effect. So there is also just more rain bringing systems that come to the area. And, but in other parts of the world, these two effects uh, can also work in opposite directions. So you would have um, an increase in rainfall because of, um, because of climate change, uh, so because of the, the thermodynamic effect, but you have a decrease because the rain systems don't go there that often anymore, so you actually don't have a change in the likelihood um, of um, of rainfall. And similar effects also have um, yeah apply for drought. So that's why we see these very different um, results for East Africa and South Africa. We haven't looked at droughts in the U.S., so I can't say anything about the drought in California. Okay, um, how about hurricanes? We just saw a pretty large one dump a huge amount here in the United States. Um, there's often the word record setting lately attached. 
to rainfall totals for these hurricanes. Um, you just talked about rainfall, but can we talk about hurricanes in particular? Seems to be, um, the intensity seems to be increasing, if not the frequency. Can you talk about the difference there and what you're tracking? So, well, we are, um, for, to, to attribute individual weather events, you need to have large ensembles of climate models. So that means you, have, you need to be able to run your climate model over and over again to be able to, um, to assess what is possible weather. And so doing these kind of studies for hurricanes themselves is um, quite tricky because you need very high resolution climate models and you need to be able to, uh, to run them very often. So we actually haven't done studies on the hurricane themselves. But we have done, and other groups as well, in Berkeley, uh, the group in Berkeley Lab, where Michael Wiener and his colleagues have looked at the rainfall associated with hurricanes, because we have more adequate climate models to look at that. And we find that the intensity of the rainfall has increased um, as well as the frequency of high-intensity rainfall events associated with hurricanes. Well, that goes along with what we've been hearing reported by, you know, weather channels and so forth, that some of these uh, rainfall totals are astonishing. <laughs> I think 40 inches in the recent uh, hurricane in North Carolina, South Carolina, which uh, is overnight, I believe, which <laughs> if anybody's yeah, 40 inches overnight, they know what that can do. Yes, and there will, there will very soon also be studies on the hurricanes themselves, but it's yeah this is a very very new field of research so a lot of things happen in a short time frame but at the moment we only have studies on the rainfall associated with hurricanes what are some of the other things you're studying do you look at wildfires uh we haven't looked at wildfires per se um but um so what because wildfires from a weather point of view they need uh high temperatures, dryness, and also strong winds. And so um, we have looked at individual components of that. So in, we did, we done a study on, on the heat wave in Northern Europe, which was often associated with, um, with wildfires. Um, and so if you have from, from all these components, unless you have one of them going down dramatically from, for, for, uh, for whatever reason, well, we don't have any, any, yeah, it doesn't look like it. We don't, we have no evidence that that's the case. But when the temperature's going up, that then, so you have one of the components where the, the likelihood increases, that then automatically also increases the risk of wildfires. For the layperson, how would you distinguish the difference between climate and weather? I think a lot of people get confused and they often say, well, you can't even predict weather two days hence, how can you possibly talk about the climate changing? How do you respond to people who confuse those two things? Well, so climate is average weather. And when you, when you want to do a weather forecast, um, you want to know exactly how much it will ra rain um, the day after tomorrow in exactly the city I live in. And because of the chaotic nature of the climate system, we can only predict that for for a couple of weeks in advance. But when you want to look at the weather, you do not want to know 
will it rain 40 inches on the 2nd of November but what you, in, in Houston or whatever. But what you want to know then is what is, what is possible or how likely is it that it would rain above a certain threshold, so above 40 inches in that area um, in, in a given season. And that is something what, that you can um, that, that, that you can predict or that you can project if when you know um, the drivers. And so we use for climate, we use the same models as you use for the weather forecast, but we are not interested in, um, in the exact timing of it, but just in the likelihood and the possibility of certain extreme events. And so that, there's no contradiction there. Um, from observing so far the reaction to data like this, um, so far the money has been going to the mop-up effort and the ability to respond after the event comes, not so much the actions to prevent future climate change. Can you comment on how you hope your data will be used by governments, uh, emergency planners, and also other uh, policy people? Well, I think it is already. Uh, it is already. It's, start, it's starting to being used because usually, uh, or in in the past, um, the data that has been used to estimate how high you need to build a dam, what what you need to insure against, and so on, has been all based on observational data only, and that of course is dangerous if you have a, an underlying trend and your observations don't really represent. The present anymore but a past that isn't yeah that is quite different to the present and so one thing that um that we hope is what people use is to combine observed data with uh, high quality model simulations of what the risks actually are today so that you don't adapt to uh, the weather of the past, but that you actually adapt to present day and future weather. And that is increasingly happening. So, for example, in the UK, um, the uh, a flood risk report that the government has issued has used um, that kind of, the same kind of data that we also use in our studies. Um, so I think th there's definitely a way forward. It's just to, yeah, make have that part of all planning and not just in the UK. I uh, spoke to someone last year about climate communication, how we communicate with the public from scientist to the layperson. And one of the big communicators in our world of media is the weather person uh, delivering the news up on the local channel or national channel. Is there an effort to insert into weather reporting more information on climate prediction? Yes, there is. So um, when, for example, when we, in the World Weather Attribution, we work with Climate Central and they have a project called Climate Matters so that they use, um, when appropriate, uh, information on climate that they make uh, graphically appealing and, and simple to communicate and give that to uh, weather presenters. Um, we also work with the MAP services uh, in, in, in different countries. And one of the reasons why this research is so powerful is that 
when you have an extreme event, you already have the attention of the people. And so if you then can bring the evidence and, um, and the, the, the role of climate change into that conversation, that, that, is, that is something that is much easier to communicate as if you tell people that, well, in, um, in the future, somewhere else in the world, things will become really, uh, yeah, really hard. I know that um, we have uh, air pollution numbers uh, that warn the public when it's over a certain level of air pollution, they shouldn't go outside. Do you foresee at some point whether people having a similar kind of a graphic or system where they're discussing future events, intensity of storms and so forth to educate people to be prepared? Or is that just too hard to do on a regular basis? Well, uh, I think in, in, in a lot of cases, uh, weather services already try to do that, to warn with a sort of for, uh, for extreme events. Usually they warn for extreme events a couple of days ahead, but I think what um, what is something that is certainly possible to think about, and in countries where, where for example, um, things like El Nino have a large influence, there is already this seasonal forecast warning and seasonal forecast network where people are warned about potential droughts uh, a, a, yeah, a few months in advance. Um, that, it, that is happening and totally possible. I think it usually takes a big hit before people actually realize how important it is. Right. Right. You you have their attention after it's already happening, yeah. but not always ahead of time. The people who are interested will be farmers and emergency planners and insurance companies, perhaps, um, and governments. So that seems like your audience. Uh, are there other audiences you're cultivating for your data? So, well, we work a lot with the, with the... So we have always worked with the Red Cross, and we work a lot with the Red Cross, and so it's often that we... Um, that we do a study because they are um, they are actually asking, okay, we have this event and there are decisions to be made about um, rebuilding, relocating. Can you, uh, yeah, can you tell us if climate change really is a game changer here, here or if this was actually a very rare event and continues to be a rare event? This is um, a little bit of a departure, but hopefully not too much. Um, when we're talking about responding to events, um, extreme weather events and, and the preparation for what's to come, do you think um, the communication to the planners and the government officials is strong enough to get them to pay attention to how much, how much worse it's going to get in the near future? <laughs> is, uh, are they paying attention, I guess is my question. Um, well... If you ask if it's if it's good enough, no, it's definitely not good enough. Some of them pay attention, some of them start to pay attention, but I think there is still there is still a lot of room for improvement and it's it's very so for some for for example when we talk, when I talk with uh, with ministers in India, they were saying, well, the p parliament will only act once it has been reported a lot in the media and it's, it's through the media that you get the attention of politicians. And in other countries that have been working in Ethiopia or so, for example, that is completely different. So there people are working 
scientists are working directly with politicians and um and so it's yeah it's it's very different from country to country and well you know best how how it works in the u.s um where i think a lot actually is happening on city scales whereas on 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 the on the larger governmental scales it's it's very hard yes it seems we're going backwards in this country in terms of science informing wise government policy but hopefully that's a short-term thing uh, the long-term prospects are uh, maybe perhaps more optimistic once the public gets engaged with voting in people who will do something about preventing the worst parts of climate change which comes to my next question which is are we sugarcoating what's going to happen to us are we being honest with the public about how bad it's going to get and in how long and is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners about that i think we scientists we are honest <laughs> um and of course it's of course it's a bit tricky with this increasingly fragmented media but i think it's it's important two things are important climate change is happening and it's happening now and it's not happening just in developing countries uh, but also in developed countries um but at the same time it's also um climate change we are not all it's not something that should paralyze us it's not something that will overnight change uh change our whole lives so it is something where at this point in time we really have uh, we, we are really at a point where we can act and where we can prevent really, really, really bad changes to happen. Um, and so we we have it in our hands to adapt and also to mitigate. It, it is happening, but it's also, it's not, yeah, we will not die all tomorrow because of climate change. We have it in our hands to, to make it actually uh, so that, that we can, live our lives more or less as we used to. Are we being honest with people to tell them that, you know, if we just go to solar, um, everything will be fine and nothing will change? I keep hearing mixed messages. One is it's baked in because we've already put so much greenhouse gas into the atmosphere, so a certain level of climate change is inevitable. And some people go even further and say we are already at that tipping point where these runaway cycles are happening in the Arctic with the melting of the permafrost, releasing massive methane. So you hear those stories, and it may cause some people to become paralyzed. But what I'm hearing you say is that's not helpful, and nor is it perhaps 100% accurate. Well, there are effects that are happening already, and there are also long-term effects, but so far they are... They are relatively they are relatively small and and they are not they are not changing the weather worldwide so that you actually that you actually notices notice it and it's while there is inertia in the climate system and so of course the the emissions we put out today will be there uh will be there for for many hundred years but um we uh when we when we change our economy to uh a carbon-free economy within the next 30 years and it's possible to do that then then it's totally in our hands to stop climate change to stop climate change 
We just need to have the governments uh, listen to the people and what we need for our future and not the corporations who are trying to make a buck at the expense of our future. And that's my editorial insert there coming from the United States and the way our politics are infused with cash from extractive industries in coal. And coal is one of the big culprits. And that's who's funding some of our politicians right now. So we need a lot of help to get that money out of the system so that we can make wise policy that will save us. And we are the biggest, one of the biggest polluters, not the biggest anymore. Um, are you having a receptive ear from China, the other biggest polluter on the planet? China is, um, is actually putting a lot of effort in, uh, in understanding what climate change means for China. So there are, there are many projects working on the kind of science that, that, that me and my team are doing this attribution science. Uh, it's, it's growing enormously in China. And so um, I think there is definitely uh, a will to change in, 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 in large parts of, of China, but China is also a big place. So, um, yeah, I, I can't really comment on the, um, on the, on the other, on the non-science side of things for China. Uh, I understand. So in Europe, they've had droughts and extreme heat. Um, from your own perspective, is the European Union and Britain receptive to receiving this kind of information that you guys are putting out and acting on it? Um, to a degree, but also not as... Um, so I think Britain is currently um, debating whether they should put it into law to have zero carbon emissions towards the middle of the century. And I think if they are actually putting that through and do that, that would, that would be really important and that would also have um, some influence on other um, European states. But, for example, my home country, Germany, is at the moment, yeah, paddling back from actually having been quite progressive with, um, but now um, they have, yeah, they have remembered that they actually also get a lot of money from the coal industry. So I think it's, it's a back and forth. It's still not as great as it could be. Do you think that the extreme weather events that we are having um, cause the public to change their minds and thus to start pressuring their own governments? I hope so. I hope that, I think with Hurricane Harvey, where there was a lot of, uh, th there were several independent attribution studies all finding more or less the same thing, that climate change was really playing an important role. I think that had a lot of impact. And then we had in Northern Europe, we had this summer heat wave where we did a study and where there was also an incredible amount of, of media attention to it and also the, the role of climate change. So I think if these, we have more of these events that really affect people um, and so that, and they, they, that this, this, uh, this knowledge lasts till the next election and they actually remember that this is an issue when they vote, that, yeah, I think that can happen and hopefully it will happen. Some of the data, just simple numbers seem to sink in for people, such as 2018 is going to be in the top 10 hottest years and the past decade is also in the top 10 hottest years. So just showing people that the temperatures uh, globally are going up is an effective tool in addition to them 
being reminded that these the extremity of these weather events has to do with climate change. So linking those two things seems to hit home for a lot of the public that I talk to. It's hard to ignore those numbers and not feel them personally if you've been through any extreme weather event such as we have here with um, whole cities just burning down overnight. Uh, that didn't used to happen in the middle of December and it happened in Santa Rosa, California. So I think those are two things together seem to move the dial on people's awareness, like, oh, this is real. Yeah, I think it's important to make the connection because mean temperatures don't kill people. It's the extreme events that kill people. But if you can really make this close connection, then I think it's much, it's much more effective. There is a danger, however, I think, of us becoming numb to the pictures. Um, they become so frequent when you see people wading through floods or running for their lives. It, it can have the opposite effect, I think, of normalizing these extreme weather events. That that's just the new normal. We hear reporters say that, and I wish they would not. Uh, is there also that danger that we could just get used to it as it is now? Of course, it's not going to stay this way, right? It's, going to get more extreme i was going to say i think we need to get used to what we have today because um that 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 is what, what we experience today is the climate change we will have no matter what but um it's still something where most people can live with and where we can adapt to to almost almost everywhere we just need to make sure that it stays at this and not become much worse and is there a prediction that you know of um, that says, you know, that if we do nothing or if we just keep on where we are, um, how long will it be before the mean temperatures are not survivable for humans? That's not going to happen anytime soon or in the foreseeable future. Well, I guess that's comforting. It gives us enough time to not be killed while we're figuring this out. Well, I want to thank you for your time today and talking to us on Planet Watch. It's been really interesting. Is there any information you want to direct people to about your work that they could look up online or learn more? Well, we have a we have a website that is uh, www.worldweatherattribution.org, and 